Hi everybody, I'm back again. Uh, it's Bible reading time. So let's focus on God's word. So this is from 2 Samuel chapter 5. 2 Samuel 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will be shepherd, you will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, You will not get in here. Even the blind and lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say that lame and blind, uh, blind, blind lame, will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibha, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went back to, went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Giza. 
Good to be with you tonight. Mike just turned off. Good to be with you tonight. Be coming out of that, you know, lockdown craziness. I've uh, been traipsing through Facebook and joining new groups. So I'm going to tell you about that now. Um, while we're in lockdown, I joined a Facebook group called Off the Grid Australia, and. Uh, as an example of the cool things that they talk about, this is uh, you know, a homemade spa bath, wood fire heater on the river. And I'm like, I'm looking for an escape. So I'm looking at this and I'm getting all these engineering ideas about things to build in the backyard. This is what I'm thinking about in lockdown. But the group was way more interesting than I was expecting. A lot of people go off grid because they want to run away from the government. And so there was a lot of comments that were anti-regulation, anti-government, and uh, you know, occasionally someone would say something like, we should put a fence around that hot tub, and the whole group would go off about, why are you putting so many regulations in place? Stop, you know, run away, don't worry about all the rules. And uh, every two weeks or so, someone starts a comment about wanting to begin a commune and to run away from government and media. But then it descends into a fight about whether the farm should be vegan or not. And, um, you know, someone says, great, another sub-society creating more division. So it's a really fun group. There's 117,000 people in it. And uh, I think it's gone up to 120,000 this week. Um, anyways, um, what's funny is they want to escape social media they want to escape the media, and there's 170,000 people in this social media group. And they want to run away from regulations, but there's so many social activists in the group. And I'm just struck when I was listening to Off Grid Australia versus people on the North Shore during the middle of lockdown at how different people re relate to governments, how different people react to regulations, how different people think about leaders and people in positions of leadership. And that's the thing about Australia, isn't it? People have different reactions to leaders. They think all the leaders of the different states, you know, Verajikli and Palachay Andrews in that time, and Perrottet, um, oh, and Ted Lasso. There's a, I've been looking for a reaction all day. No one's getting it. I just don't know if people are watching Ted Lasso at the moment. But he's the kind of leader that gets a reaction. People love Ted Lasso. Um, there's all kinds of views about leaders. Some, sometimes we appreciate a leader, other time we want to escape them, we want to run away, get off the grid, and get away from their government. Well, in this series, God is building a kingdom. God is establishing a government. People are having different reactions to it. And uh, some people appreciate the leadership, but some people want to escape it and go off grid, run away from it. And that was true then, and it's true today. People have different reactions to the government that God's setting up. And we're thinking about that today. So today's passage is the ascension of David, the rise of David to the throne. It's that really hype moment in salvation history in the Bible when, uh, when, when David gets a throne. And it's been a seven-year detour so far in 2 Samuel. So if you've been following along, you'll see that there's been many off paths, people battling for leadership. There's been murders, decapitations. It's been a real mess rival leaders, you know, seeking for power. But as always, God's plans prevail. And so we're going to see in 2 Samuel 5, is David becoming king over all Israel? 
And there's three sections, uh, three stories in this chapter. Firstly, Israel anoint their king. Secondly, David gets a palace. And thirdly, Israel. Israel beat the Philistines. So that's the plan. First story, Israel anoint their king. This is the high point. This is a great moment. This is a time where all Israel have come together as one and there's finally no more division between north and south. There's no more division between, as it says there in in verse 1, flesh and blood. We are your own flesh and blood. No more division between north and south. They finally recognize what God's doing. They finally recognize what God's been saying all along. Verse 2, in the past while Saul was king over us, you, David, were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will become their ruler. So they're realizing it. God said it already. God's already made it. You know, God's anointed King David. What, seven years of detour? And finally, they recognize it. And they anoint David as king. And they do it in the presence of God as a covenant. And then we get this summary in verse 4 and 5. David reigned for 40 years from the time he was 30 years old to the time he was 70 years old, which in the Bible's a really round number, a great blessed leadership King David has. And he's called a shepherd to shepherd the people. We think of shepherd and sheep maybe with some negative connotations. You don't want to be the kind of person who's a sheep following the crowds, but that's not how it's meant. The shepherd-sheep language of the Old Testament is because King David had grown up as a shepherd and when he cared for the sheep, he had to fight off wild animals to protect them. And then when he became of age and became an adult, he turned up to that war with the Philistines and he conquered Goliath to protect the people of Israel. So that's what the shepherd is. It's the protector, the one who cares for the sheep. And so King David is the unifying shepherd. One leader brings together north and south And this is a key moment in salvation history. So here's the lesson for us out of that first bit of the story. When God chooses a king, we can go on all kinds of detours and roundabouts. We can try and run away. You know, we can go try and set up rival kingdoms, do all kinds of things. But when God chose David, God chose David. David was going to become the leader. And he was patient to wait for people to come on board. God is patient, patient to wait for people to come on board. And he's waiting for people now. So here in the room, he's waiting for people now to come on board with his king, except obviously King David is 3,000 years ago history and Jesus has ascended the throne. So God's patiently waiting for people who are going off grid from the kingdom of Jesus, and saying, come, acknowledge the king, and he's patient, he's waiting for people to come, to come and acknowledge the king. So that's the first story. And when you do Old Testament passages, there's a lot of history, but it's theological history, and it's always a challenge to figure out how to apply it, isn't it? But in each of these stories, it's actually primarily about David as a type of God's king anointed like the Messiah Jesus, And so we apply it to ourselves through the lens of understanding Jesus. And that's why I'll do that at each point tonight. So the second section in 2 Samuel 5, David gets a palace. God leads David up Mount Zion 
and into a palace. He exalts him. So the Jebusites, um, they'd been trouble for Israel for a long time. They had a fortress on a hill in the middle of the Israelite people and they just, it was always battles that they kept, they, they, they were losing these battles, not able to get on top and uh, the Jebusites were really unbeatable on a fortress on a hill and really confident. You might say that they were too confident, that they were uh, cocky, that they were you know, self-reliant in such a way that they, they knew that they were safe, they felt that they were safe. They had a high wall, big fortress. They were building all those man-made things to protect you. So I don't know what you build for your security and how you think about that, whether it's the way you think about needing to get enough income or the way that you think about you know, the health insurance or the way that you want to set up your future and your protections. Uh, but they had confidence in their made ma- man-made securities, so much confidence in their fortresses. Um, and what we see in verse 6 is it says, the Jebusite said to David, you'll not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. Boom, just one sentence. David got the victory and he named it the city of David. So this is a great victory and... uh, It's a lesson about building your own securities and having too much self-confidence in the thing that you build yourself. You can't get in here. There is no security apart from the absolute security of God in the kingdom of God. And those Jebusites lost their fortress. David gained that fortress, not that he needed a fortress because he already had God as his fortress, but it was a great victory. And it was actually a pretty cool story. It's like special forces kind of stuff. It goes on to uh, explain in the next couple of verses that they did this through the water shaft. And if anyone's been to Jerusalem, it's a great privilege. But if you ever get to go to Jerusalem, go check out Hezekiah's tunnel and go in the tunnel systems underneath the city in the old city because you can walk through them. You can put, it's like you know, up to your shins water and you walk through the tunnels under the city. And uh, there's a bit that's fenced off, which is the older parts of the tunnel, which is where David and the men would have come up. And there's a 15-metre water shaft in that part that they would walk in cave systems, drop a bucket to get water at the bottom, pull up the water and take it back. So it's like a well, and these you know, ninja warriors, they would climb up through the shaft into the middle of the city without having to breach the walls. So this is, this is a really great victory. And uh, that's actually the beginning of why Jerusalem is the center of so much of our religious history. Because this is a God moment where God's bringing his king into that fortress and establishing that place so that in the end that's the place where that they'd build the temple. That's the place where all of that Old Testament imagery about Jerusalem and even in the New Testament we talk about the new Jerusalem in thinking about heaven and what's in store because... This is, king. this is the moment where they take Jerusalem. So this is a God moment and the theological explanation, whenever you read a passage, there's, there's the actual storytelling, but then there's also the commentary to try and interpret it. And the theological interpretation is there in verse 10 to verse 12. So verse 10, and he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. That's a key point. 
David became powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. And then it goes on to say something really amazing, which just highlights how much of a God moment this is. Verse 11, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew, here's the theological commentary, that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. We can't underestimate what we've just read. The people of Tyre is a coastal city that is not Israelite. And they didn't just send like presents to get some peace. They actually sent stonemasons and carpenters to build the palace for David. So the nations are exalting the kingdom of Israel and God's king is uh, established and, uh, and it all says there it's for the sake of the people. And so this is a great victory. This is a God moment. And uh, this story is about the ascension of David, not just, to a, not just to a throne, but to a palace on a hill. And some people are against him, like the Jebusites, laughing at the, the king, saying, you can't do it. Other people are for him, like the people of Tyre. So there's different reactions to God's king, but uh, God's exalting him. So here's the lesson again for us. When God exalts a king, we can honour him, we can dishonour him, but no one can stop God from honouring him. And God honoured David. God honoured David through the people of Tyre bringing the gifts. And not just the people of Tyre, God honoured David by giving him that victory and bringing him to that fortress on the hill. Well, as you know, the story continues that even though God exalts David, David dishonors himself. So there's a little window into that there, and I've heard from some growth groups that you've spent some time looking at that, verse 13 and 14, because there's just a little crack that's forming. The commentary is not there to say anything positive or negative, but there is a comment there that David had lots of wives and concubines, and as we continue on, in particular, you know, even Solomon's there, as we continue on, we learn the story of Bathsheba later in Samuel, and we see that he's not a, he's not a faithful king in all areas of life at all times. So we're not meant to look at King David as God's final, lasting, everlasting, exalted king. He is a type of the Messiah. He is a foretaste. Jesus Christ himself is the exalted king that God's established. And uh, therefore, we now are to look at Jesus and exalt him. So here's a verse on the screen. God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So that's what ought to happen. When God exalts, we ought to also exalt. But as we've seen, there's different reactions. And we can be like the people of Tyre or we could be like the Jebusites. We can send gifts and honor him. Or we can mock him, taunt him and go against it. But none of that's going to stop God from exalting his king. God will do what God will do.
And all of this is actually a really good thing, which brings us to the final story. The exaltation is actually for the sake of the people, and we go on to see that Israel beat that Philistine army that came to, to, to defeat them. This is a monumental victory. The Philistines are the arch-rival threat in the territory. They came out in valleys to you know, destroy and to conquer Israel, and it would have been a terrifying experience. And um, they were the ones that, in one Samuel, had already defeated Israel and carried off the Ark of God, if you can remember that story, if you've had the opportunity to read one Samuel before. They were also uh, the ones that were a real threat during the days of Samuel, and the prophet Samuel had to keep them at bay. But when Samuel got old, the people got nervous that no one could look after the nation against the Philistines. And so they cried out, Lord, help us to have a king like the nations. And then Saul, the really tall guy, comes along. But he goes into battle with the Philistines and he's trembling in his boots. And in the end, he takes things into his own hands as a self-reliant king is not faithful to God in the battle against the Philistines. And therefore, God rejects him as king in the end. It's David, God's leader, who's going to stand up to the enemy and bring victory against the Philistines. And in this story, in verse 17, they come in full force. They come in full force and they went down into the valley and they spread out in the valley, like just filling the valley. It would be a terrifying experience. And uh, what's David's first instinct? What will he do in reply? If you had an army coming against you, what would you do? What does David do? He speaks to the Lord. He inquires of the Lord. He prays. And that's just perfect, isn't it? What a perfect first response to stress. I don't know how you handle stress when you get anxious, when there's a big threat against you, but sometimes it's our response to take it into our own hands, especially the more capable we get. The more capable you are, the more you feel you can work out your own situations, work out your own struggles, build your own fortresses. But David, after all these years as a military leader, who's tactically brilliant, prays. And that's a great example for each of us. David gets on his knees and his prayerfulness leads to his victory. It's one with his power. They're inextricably linked. You can see that his, power, his prayerfulness is linked to his power so that the victory is one and the same. So in verse 20 and 21, um, David basically goes out uh, to Baal Perizim and there he defeated them. He said, as waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal Perizim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there and David and his men carried them off. There's a theological commentary again you know David's making it this time the Lord's broken out against my enemies and uh, there's this like a war between the gods even going on here in verse 21 the Philistine idols get carried away by men and in the next chapter we'll see next week that when people try to carry the ark of God it doesn't go well for them so this is the Lord breaking out like waters flooding a valley. God goes before them. Great victory. But there's more actually because the Philistines come back, I don't know how long later. These are kind of sweeping overviews of the ascension of David and time is not really on focus. 
but it does put them back to back. And it speaks about the Philistines coming back, and it's exactly the same. Verse 22, once more the Philistines came and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So it's an identical situation, and David has an identical response. He inquires of the Lord and prays. But what's really interesting about his second prayer is the way that God doesn't answer it in the same. Well, he kind of does. He gives the same outcome. But God's creative in the way that he's interacting with the world. When we pray, we can't assume he's going to answer in the same way each time. So David inquires, what should I do? And the Lord says, not this time. Don't go forwards. Go around the back. And uh, David goes around the back, and it says in, you know, in verse um, 23, God says, do not go straight up, but circle around behind them and tack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Giza. Yeah, there you go. The theological commentary is that the Lord goes like an army in the trees. There's this wind, and it says, go. Go now. This is the victory. The Lord goes first. How we wish the Lord would go before us in all of our ministries. We're often praying, Lord, go before me. And uh, this is the beautiful image of the Lord making this a success. And we need to leave it in God's hands when we pray. He doesn't guarantee that he'll give us these victories each time we pray. And God gives different outcomes and answers in different ways. And we wait on him. And that's exactly what David did. And we could talk more about prayer and how this relates to our prayer lives and how we ought to think about, you know, being faithful in prayer. But I actually think that the most important lesson here is about, it's not about us, it's about the king. It's not about our prayer lives. It's about his prayer life. And it's not about just his prayer life, but it's actually about what God's doing in that day for his king and how prayer interweaves with that. What's God doing? God's bringing the victory over that arch nemesis, the Philistines, who were the greatest threat in their day. That's what God's doing. The victory of David's monumental. To bring it to us, the victory of Jesus Christ is even more monumental. I love how Colossians 2 puts it. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So the death of Jesus is the... Victory of victories. It's the most monumental victory. He triumphs over the powers and authorities in Colossians 2. The context is that there's powers and authorities that judge you and bring you condemnation and you know, make you before God guilty. But Jesus has conquered them and brought you freedom from sin and judgment and brought you freedom for relationship with God and freedom for life. This is salvation. This is the work of you know, Jesus Christ. This is the victory. So now we'll step back from all three stories and draw it all together. We've covered a fair bit today, and some of it sounds like it's history from a few thousand years ago. But the way the Bible works is that each historical point is being crafted under God's sovereign care so that theologically it points us to lessons for today. And uh, we've seen a few lessons as we've gone from the theological sentence in the text. Um, but as always... There's belief applications, and then there's doing applications. We like to get people to you know, guide us in what to do and how to go about doing things, but I think actually on focus here today is things to know and love about God. 
and things to know and believe about God's king. One thing to love about God is his power. His power as he brings together the people of Israel, unifies them under one leader. His power to bring people into Jerusalem and to set up and establish that place. And his power to you know, blow before the Israelites like wind and go before them to, to lead them to victory against their greatest threat. So his power. Another thing to love about God is his patience. There's a long time gap between his plans and our acceptance of his plans. Could take seven years, 70 years. We're looking for every detour to try and run away from all of his things. But in the end, people will see that his plans are good. God's steady hands over it all and he's patient, he's methodical, he's building it slowly and he's waiting for people to come on board and he gets us there. He is very patient. Another thing to love about God is his peace. We heard more about this last week, but just to kind of bring it back to the fore, there's a lot of things in life that make us anxious. And this week I was like lying asleep at night and I woke up as my wife yelled out, there's someone here. What? And then I realized she was asleep. It was like sleep talking. So I woke her up. It's all right. And I said, what's happening? She said, oh, I was having a dream that someone was unzipping the tent and our kids were asleep in there. And, you know, because of the story of Cleo and the, the nightmares we bring into our homes, the whole nation's been watching that. In our house, we've just felt that anxiety as parents, you know. It's a frightening thing. But, uh, and just to highlight it even further, I just wonder, what is it that, leads to your nightmares. There's a lot of anxious things in this world. But how good were the police? I don't know if you've caught up on what they did exactly, but they searched through 600 kilometres of rubbish bins along the Western Australian coast looking for evidence so that they could find Cleo. They were like scraping um, and mapping forensically the whole area inch by inch looking for clues. And when they broke into that house at 1am, and they picked up this poor girl and said, what's your name? And she said, my name is Cleo. How good is it that they came to help? And this is the thing. Is there's lots of things that make us anxious in life. There's lots of threats in life. But there is also help. There's danger. And there's help. Help is real. In our passage, we've seen that God gives his king to help the people. God gives his king to save the people. And he gives us a shepherd to save us because that's what God's like. He is a protector. He is a shepherd himself. And so it would be really good if more people appreciated his salvation and stopped thinking about Jesus as a government worth avoiding, a kingdom with regulations that you want to run away from and go off-grid. You can go to the top parts of Western Australia and go to Blowholes Campground thinking it's a great relaxing place to go off grid, but even there, their threats are real. There's no human security that we can build for ourselves because there's a tunnel under every human fortress. But with God, it's salvation. With Jesus, he is a savior. And so let's honor Jesus as the band comes up, as we sing about the Lord. Let's honor Jesus. Let's thank God that he's patient, that he welcomes us to be 
you know, slow even to come to acknowledge Jesus. If you haven't acknowledged Jesus before, acknowledge the King. And let's, uh, let, let's go out as advocates so that we can help people understand why Jesus is a great saviour and they can come into his kingdom. Because Jesus is a good king. And whether it takes us a long time or a little time, everyone's going to see it because God's in charge. So let us sing. Well, we have a moment of Q&A. There's a number of questions coming through on the slide. I hope you're ready, mate. I take your silence as you are ready. Let's jump into it. Uh, first question here. There's two questions on prayer, so I'm sort of going to combine them into one. Um, do you have any advice about how to be prayerful when my default response is to try and problem solve? I'd say it's a default response for us to be anxious as people because we live in a world we can't control. And therefore, it's our default response to try and control it and bring some order. Uh, so that's all of us. So the question's a great question. Uh, but biblically, the way we deal with anxieties as a Christian community is we bring them to the God of peace who's able to actually do something. And so that's the principle that we know, and we're trying to live it out. I think one way to get better is the more you actually rely on yourself, you just make so many mistakes that you start to realize you can't do that anymore. So just keep making mistakes. That's not what I'm saying. But learn from them, yeah? Learn from your mistakes. It's true. Uh, Self-reliance hurts you in the end. But secondly, if you have a rhythm of prayerfulness, it teaches you a way of operating so that when you come into situations, your default is to pray. So rhythms, mine's in the morning, and that is my proactive approach, but through the rest of the day, there's reaction to situation that flows out of that morning proactiveness. I think too, as you, as you travel along in your, your Christian life, as you get older and older, you sort of see God working in different ways through prayer, so it becomes more of the default response the older one becomes. Yeah, I, I also had a patch where it went the other way. So just, if I could just quickly comment, when I was a ministry apprentice, I was praying so much more because I had more time to pray and I was confused a little bit about the way God speaks in answering prayers and I was going through a journey. And so, yes, in an ideal world, we're always growing in our prayerfulness, but there was a period where I was going through that uncertainty. It's actually been living in the community of God's people and being encouraged by others that's helped me to continue to grow in that. It is a lifelong lesson, isn't it? Yeah, it's wonderful. Um, another question bit off this topic, but onto a different topic, more controversial topic maybe. Why didn't God rebuke David for having so many wives and concubines, considering his previous reaction, say, Sodom and Gomorrah? Yeah, that is a really interesting question, and I will come back to it in Sermon Extra. My comment for now is just to say it's an unfolding story with God that in the beginning people walked with God and knew God and lived his ways, there's a time of, I guess, suppression of truth, the ignorance of understanding, and God doesn't always correct and critique people on the journey along the way. Uh, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that aren't condemned. We learn later what God's will and plan is. And I'm interested to think a little bit more about this issue in the Old Testament and how it unfolds with time, because I also find it a little odd 
in the way that I think about God revealing himself in the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses, and helping them to know him, but then this issue continuing to prevail? So that's a good question. You got time for one more? Well, I'm not in charge here. <laughs> All right, we'll have one more question uh, for Elliot. And it's the one about the, you know, the, the experience of the signs, you know, where, they, where God sort of told them to come around and wait for the, the wind to move through. The, should we be expecting or looking for those signs today? If so, what they look like. If not, what do we do? Yeah, the interesting thing in the Old Testament is God spoke in many and varied ways. And in that particular moment, David inquired of the Lord. And if you look at the phrase, inquired of the Lord, it's a technical phrase used through the Old Testament in various times. And uh, they had ways that were given to them to inquire, particularly through prophets and through other various means. Um, I'll pick up more of this. So just to give a soundbite for now, just to say... uh, How do we understand the perfect fulfillment of revelation in Jesus? And how do we understand the way that God continues to interact with us today and how it's changed or what's in common with the past? I'll speak more about that in the group. There's there's a number of teasers through to Sermon Extra as Rosie comes on and you change out. Uh, Elliot will be on uh, the Christchurch St. Ives Facebook members page, another uh, Facebook page to join if you haven't joined it. And has anyone signed up for Off Grid Australia yet? No, no one wants to own up to being on their phone during church. But I will see you as I check it when I get home this evening to see who's joined the club.